Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Last week, the outbreak of an insurgency against the Russian state by Yevgeny Prigozhin and his Wagner group shocked observers across the world. After accusing the Russian Ministry of Defense of having attacked Wagner troops on Friday, Prigozhin vowed to retaliate. He proceeded to lead his forces into Russia, seizing the city of Rostov-on-Don, including the Southern Military District headquarters located there, and marched toward Moscow, coming 200 kilometers of the city. And then, almost as quickly as it started, the dramatic events abruptly came to a conclusion on Saturday with the announcement of a deal brokered by Russian, uh, sorry, Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko. Some of the details of the insurgency have become more clear over this last week, but there remain a lot of questions, including about how the insurgency will affect Russia's execution of its war in Ukraine, and of course, its implications for the future political stability of Russia. To discuss all this and more, we're happy to have Angela Stent with us on the podcast. Welcome, Angela. Great to be back on your podcast. I love listening to Brussels sprouts. Uh, For those of you who don't know Angela, she is Professor Emerita of Government and Foreign Service at Georgetown University, as well as a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and also, I understand, doing some time at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Okay, Angela, some of the details, though certainly not all, have become more clear, and it appears now that the insurgency was not intended to topple the Putin regime, but was much more about Prigozhin uh, and kind of his corporate interests of the Wagner group. Is that your understanding, I guess, set the scene a little bit in terms of what trans- what do we know about what transpired last week? Yeah, well, it's that's a great question, Andrea. And uh, what comes to mind is the title of one of Peter Pomerantz's book, Nothing is true and everything is possible. So there's still that we a lot that we don't know. Um, it does seem that he was he was very upset with the Ministry of Defense. He's been attacking Defense Minister Shoigu and Chief of the General Staff uh, Valeri Gerasimov for months now, uh, saying that the the army is ill-equipped, the soldiers are badly trained, and the Wagner troops were doing the brunt of the fighting, particularly in in a town like Bakhmut. So he he has been attacking them for for some time. Um, And then there was a direct clash between MOD forces and Wagner forces apparently in uh, Ukraine, um, which was one of the things that prompted uh, even more anger. Um, But my understanding also is that he was setting himself really up as a populist alternative to the people in the Kremlin. The, The messages of the week before this insurgency, or let's call it a mutiny, began were Um, The war was unnecessary. Ukraine wasn't threatening Russia. Um, And really, it was uh, greedy oligarchs um, in Russia who wanted to get their hands on Ukrainian assets. And by the way, he told the Russian people, uh, while your sons and brothers are fighting and dying and not properly trained and equipped, the sons of the elite are all sitting on beaches in the south of France and sunning themselves. So I think that he he did have a populist message. I agree that... um, I don't think that he intended to topple the government, even though we know that some generals, apparently General Surovikin and a, and a few others, knew um, about his plot to kind of march towards Moscow and make demands. Um, that there was really no plan about 
what he would have done had he actually reached Moscow. So, you know, that gets a little bit, a little bit murky. Um, but, you know, Wagner does have, uh, it's been a very important um, arm of the Russian state uh, projecting power in Africa and the Middle East, uh, particularly Syria, um, in Mali, in the Central African Republic, in Sudan, Libya, and in some African countries, Wagner has very lucrative deals going on. So they make a deal with the various autocrats who rule there, and they're making money hand over fist from gold and diamonds and uh, other precious metals. And some of that money is going back to the Kremlin. So I'm not sure what corporate interests were involved here, uh, but this is why I doubt that Wagner is going to be disbanded. Um, but I, I do think that uh, that one of his goals was, in fact, to get rid of Shoigu and Gerasimov. And as far as we know now, we've seen Shoigu, the defense minister, he's appeared in public. Uh, I do not believe that we've seen the chief of the general staff, Gerasimov. Well, thanks so much for that. And I, uh, I, it, you're absolutely right. It's it's so murky. We could sit here for days and just speculate and be absolutely wrong <laughs> on all of this. But, you know, one question that I've had for a while is the relationship between uh, or the role that Lukashenko played uh, in this whole thing. I mean, how did he get involved? Did Putin call him and say, hey, uh, help me out of the jam here? Or did he or did uh, it was it the other way around? And I mean, it was very odd that he swooped in the, the great, uh, you know, uh, conciliator concil coming in and trying to uh, bring an end to all of this. I just struck me as odd. How did that all come about? Do you well, think? Well, I, I don't think anyone knows. Um, I would still find it hard to think that Lukashenko initiated this. I mean, what we've seen since, um, you know, the election, the fraudulent election, uh, where Russia stepped in to ensure that he stayed in power, we've seen him become increasingly dependent um, on Russia, um, really subordinate to Putin doing his bid, bidding. Right. Um, very recently, you know, uh, tactical nuclear weapons were deployed in Belarus, which maybe raises his standing. It certainly is of great concern uh, to Belarus's neighbors, particularly those that are members of NATO, like Poland. Um, he claims that he stepped in, that he uh, wanted to call a Prigozhin, um, and that, you know, he spoke to Putin, and Putin said, well, um, I don't have his number, so then they asked someone in the FSB. I mean, it's just, this is Lukashenko's rendering of it. Um, and then he claims that he did speak to Prigozhin, and he managed to kind of bring him down, that he climbed down. Um, he obviously did have something to do with this deal, but the deal, as we read about it, was that Prigozhin was supposed to go in exile uh, in Belarus and the Wagner troops were supposed to go there. Um, I do not know whether Prigozhin is in Belarus. We've heard from him, but we don't actually know where he is. I'm waiting for someone, maybe the Bellingcat organization, to tell us where he is, although they, they've speculated that he's actually in Russia. And we, we haven't really seen his troops there either. And then you can ask the question, there was speculation some time ago, well, if all these Wagner troops go there, is there going to be some new attack on Kiev from Belarus in, involving Wagner troops? But that that doesn't seem nothing seems to have happened there. So I, I would say that as a result of that, Lukashenko's profile is certainly raised, uh, and he he appears to be have played a more important role. Um, but but the dynamics of this and who called who first, I'm not sure that we'll ever know. 
Yeah. So interesting. I mean, I think the other thing that's so curious about all of this is, I mean, the fact of Prigozhin himself and that Putin allowed him to continue for so long, uh, you know, uh, throwing criticism and and sparking all of this discontent and and creating these fissures within the elite. I mean, he for months and months, as you said earlier, Angela, has been highly critical of the Russian Ministry of Defense and of Shoigu and Drasimov in particular. And Putin has entirely allowed him to continue with his strong criticisms of those two officials, of the Russian Ministry of Defense, and also, you know, leveraging criticism about how Russia is executing its war in Ukraine. And I think that's that that has been such a conundrum, I think, for many of us who've watched this for so long about why Putin would allow that to continue. And I, I know, I, I, you know, I don't know that we have an answer to that, but I wonder kind of how you've thought about that. Yeah, well, so as, as you well know, Andrea, I mean, Putin, one of his modest operandi in throughout his 23 years in power is to allow people around him who have different views and who disagree with each other to kind of squabble uh, even publicly because he has put himself forward as the arbiter. So the czar sits there and his boyars argue with each other and he he lets this go on. It's maybe a vent. And in Prigozhin's case, um, he was allowing criticism, not of the war itself from Prigozhin, obviously until last week, but he was allowing Prigozhin to, to criticize the conduct of the war, uh, maybe partly because Putin himself didn't want to take the blame uh, for the failures um, and, and for the very high death count. So I think that's why he allowed Prigozhin to continue with this. What what? But it does raise a question at some point, why didn't he step in? Uh, and maybe if, you know, again, all I know is what I what I read in the newspapers, if it is true uh, that the intelligence services of Russia did get wind of this um, plot uh, a few days before it was um, the mutiny was to occur, um, then why why wasn't more done to stop him then? And I think what you saw on Saturday, uh, you know, was Putin coming out. He was very angry. He made this 15 minute speech really putting the fear of God in the Russians. I mean, talking about the 1917 revolution and the ensuing civil war when foreign powers um, invaded Russia, tried to take advantage of it. So, uh, and so he was warning people against against civil war and then he disappeared. And as we know, um, you know, the, the deal that was announced on Saturday was announced by his press secretary, Dmitry Peskov, not Putin. So to me, it signals maybe that there was some weakness there, that he was indecisive and that he wasn't willing to step in maybe when he should have. So uh, that, that does raise questions for me, but it also remains to be seen what Prigozhin is going to keep, you know, is going to be able to say going forward, because he's put out a couple of messages. He said he never meant to overthrow the government, uh, but he still is critical, um, you know, of the war and of what's going on. Um, Putin and Prigozhin go way back. Uh, they've know, you know, they've known each other for a long time. Uh, probably your listeners know that Prigozhin started out, out life. He was he was a criminal. He spent up to uh, ten years in prison for theft and other things. Um, and then he came out. He had this hot dog stand, and then uh, he was introduced. This was in Saint Petersburg to Putin, and eventually he set up a catering business. And his first 
you know, major job there was, uh, you know, as Putin's caterer that he would, and there's, you can see a picture of the time when President George W. Bush went to St. Petersburg and ate, had a meal with President Putin and Progression is standing there looking at the food. So they do go way back and Putin tends to be loyal, uh, you know, to his friends or he prizes loyalty. And even though Prigozhin had indirectly criticized, you know, the happy grandfather um, who didn't realize how bad the situation was, he hasn't actually criticized Putin. So for all these reasons, um, I think that's may maybe why Putin didn't act earlier. But I still do have major questions about it. And I think we still have to watch and see what happens to, to Prigozhin. Well, that's what I was going to ask. And Jim, you let me slide this one in really quickly because Putin has clearly labeled him a traitor. And we know that's kind of the ultimate insult from Putin or the thing that he takes most seriously. Once you're in that category, you know, that's worse than being an enemy. Being a traitor is, is the worst. And so, you know, what do you think for their future relationship? I mean, because there is a little bit of a a sense of being stuck between a rock and a hard place in the sense that he has you know, occurred the or uh, executed these traitorous events, but the Wagner fighters have been the most effective in Ukraine. And as you said, they are an extension of the state and they carry out important functions in Africa in other places. And so, especially at a time when the Russian budget is constrained, resources are constrained, um, it feels like there he has to make a little bit of a trade-off. My sense is that Putin is maybe biding his time a little bit, that he can't go after Prigozhin at the moment because he wouldn't want to alienate Wagner fighters and others who they now need, mm -hmm. given the insurgent or the sorry, the offensive that's happening in Ukraine. But I wonder what you think about the future of the relationship between Putin and Prigozhin now that he has been stuck with this most serious label, you know, the most serious label I think that Putin could have placed on him. Yeah, but it's curious because he was called a traitor. And in the beginning, they said he was, you know, he and those who marched with him were going to be prosecuted. And then hours later, uh, they took this back and they said, no, you know, they're not going to be prosecuted. So yes, the traitor word is out there. But in fact, they so far, nothing, nothing has happened to them. So I agree with you. I mean, they need Wagner in Ukraine. Um, what they're trying to do and, and what they, you know, Putin in the subsequent speech when it was all over said, you know, they want the Wagner troops to join uh, the MOD. But interestingly enough, we're not seeing that happen. We're still seeing um, uh, the Wagner is still recruiting and young men are calling up and, and they're joining Wagner. And I think maybe there's been an uptick in people because they understand that the conditions when they're with Wagner, the conditions that they're under are better than they are when they're in the MOD. So as long as there isn't this rush of thousands of, of young men to join the regular armed forces, uh, they probably do need, I mean, we have to watch and see uh, whether Wagner goes back into, I mean, some troops are still there in Ukraine or not, but without that, the, the army will do worse. Now, having said that, I would agree with you that, um, it, you know, things don't happen immediately uh, in Russia. If you look back at past situations where there have been purges, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily happen the week after something happens. So there could still be, you know, pr prosecutions of precaution and of some of those soldiers. But at the moment, uh, there doesn't seem to be an appetite to do that. Instead, Putin, you know, 
who for three years was really in semi-isolation because of COVID, suddenly shows up in Dagestan and Derbent and has a hero's welcome. Kissing babies and yeah. <laughs> babies, kissing babies, you know. And just as Prigozhin had had a hero's welcome when his uh, his soldiers took over the city of Rostov, from which the Russian operations in Ukraine are, uh, are being planned. Um, so he's now, you know, in that sense, tried to fight fight back, you know, he's popular too. He's appearing all the time. Um, he's trying to show that he's in charge. Uh, there's a big PR move, you know, movement you can see saying, you know, Putin's in charge and don't worry. But something could certainly happen later on to Prigozhin. Again, we just have to see where he is. We And, and we haven't seen um, either General Surovikin, who apparently did support what Prigozhin was doing, um, or General Gerasimov. Um, and we, we hear rumors, some media outlets in Russia have reported that, you know, they are under interrogation or Surovikin's. Surav um, but I think if something happens to Surovikin, if he's tried, if he's uh, prosecuted for this, eventually they might have to do the same for Prigozhin. You know, what's interesting is uh, Putin supposedly uh, has said that he's going to run for a real election in 2024. So kissing babies and paying attention to his domestic uh, situation, I guess, is uh, now even more important. So, so I guess, I, which is hard to believe that you know, running for an election in Russia, if you're Putin, is anything to worry about. But uh, obviously, he's he must like to kiss babies. But, um, uh, you know, um, one thing about you, you mentioned uh, uh, Prigozhin and, and, and whether uh, something might happen to him, et cetera. I think I think one thing that Putin is trying to do is not turn him into a martyr. Uh, if something were to happen to Prigozhin, uh, it, uh, you know, we've all have seen the populate uh, popular uh, support he seemed to have, at least in um, in that in Rostov on Don, uh, and uh, and then among the Wagner the Wagner group. So uh, you know, having something happen to him could be a, a a real rallying point for that support, and could really be a problem for Putin. So he's, I don't think he can, uh, I don't think he can allow something to happen to Prigozhin. Uh, that would that would not do well for him. That's my guess. But let me ask you: um, There's also a great debate about how weak Putin really is. Is he is he weak? Is he really weak, or or is he definitely weak? There's blood in the water, and he's he's got a good reason to be paranoid. And there's others who might want to take advantage of of his weakness, including Prigozhin. But uh, what do you what's how do you see that? Do you think do you consider him weak, or do you think he has survived this? Uh, he's he is uh, strong and could in fact become stronger. So on Saturday, when all these events were playing out, um, you know, many people said, "Oh, this shows he's weak." But I would say not so fast. Um, you know, they managed to deal with it. Um, the you know, Prigozhin did turn back. Putin has his own national guard, the Rosgvario, which I think has about 300,000 soldiers who are there to protect him from coups, revolutions, etc. Um, the security services, as far as we can see, are still, you know, strong and, 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 and support him. Uh, we really have seen very little 
Um, you know, we've, we've seen no public criticism um, from people in his inner circle. And I think the other thing you have to realize, you know, the Russian elites, when we put sanctions on all these people uh, after the war broke out and we think, oh, they're going to get together and, you know, say we got to get rid of this man. You know, I want to visit my my home in Cannes and my bank accounts in London. Um, you know, we failed, I think, or the people who believed that that would have that impact failed to understand that, you know, the elites owe what they have in their position in life to a deal they made with made with Putin, which is we'll stay out of politics um, as long as you know we can accumulate assets. And that deal worked, and I guess it's still working. Uh, what they didn't understand was, or d- couldn't have known, uh, was that a war would break out and they'd be so heavily sanctioned that part of what they were enjoying in their life was no longer possible. But these elites also understand that they would prefer to have Putin in power than someone else. I mean, say Prigozhin had taken over, very unlikely. You know, what would have happened to their assets and their positions? So they don't want anyone to come into power who's not going to let them continue to have the kind of deals they have. And therefore, that's Putin or someone who would be um, a, a handpicked successor to Putin and would promise that they could still have the same deal. So in that sense, I would say that he has the support of most of the elites, even if there's grumbling about it. And even if these people are questioning the conduct of the war, we, you know, some high profile people have left Russia, a million people have left Russia since the war began. uh, And some of those were quite high profile, but not too many of them. Uh, The rest of them have stayed there. Um, And as for popular support, um, you know, the polling still shows uh, that people support Putin even, you know, after this event. And to some extent, it's increased his popularity, if if you're to believe uh, the public opinion data. So I'm not sure that this leaves him weaker. I don't know that it leaves him stronger, but I think he was able to push this back. Now, the only question is, you know, if Prigozhin could do it, could somebody else do it too? Uh, And then there may be people thinking about that, but I don't think he comes out of that seriously weakened. Yeah, I think the thing that's so, I mean, with these longtime leaders, and this is like from the political scientists, Milan Spalik and others, when the fate of the elite is so intimately tied to that of the leader. Um, and so that's why often with these longtime autocracies, you don't see the elite moving against the leader just because it, it all, as you said, all of their vested interests really lie with the leader. But I think one of the things that struck me about this was kind of the the apathy a little, you know, in many ways, which, you know, and again, it's really hard to know exactly what happened, but it does seem like perhaps at least maybe with the border guards and some in the Russian military were at least, at least didn't oppose or resist. And it seems like that Prigozhin wouldn't have done this if he didn't believe that he had some buy-in from within the system. Mm -hmm. And there was no kind of public support or any, you know, even those who uh, were asking Prigozhin to 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 walk back his actions or and to to halt what he was doing, it wasn't you know they weren't ringing endorsements of Putin, and so to me that's one of the things that that that's so notable. I mean, it really does seem to me that many in the elite really have their finger to the wind because if you're one of them, you always want to back the winning side. And so to me, that that feels fragile. And so still, you know, Steve Cockin and others talk about like there is no alternative to Putin. But should there should one emerge, I feel like this could could change very quickly. But I got that that's not really so much a question. But I guess my question is, 
you know, what did you find most surprising or what, if anything, do you think we've learned about domestic politics in Russia that, that maybe you didn't know or not, not know that you didn't maybe appreciate the same way before? Or learn about Putin uh, that you didn't appreciate before. Yeah, those those are great questions. And Andrea, obviously, you've done a lot of work on authoritarian leaders and and what happens to them. So I was surprised that Prigozhin was able to get as far as he was toward Moscow, and that there wasn't more resist. I mean, resistance, or that the the Russian state, the MOD didn't, you know, send more troops and helicopters to fight them. Now, I know there were there were some casualties on the Russian side. There was an attempt, but basically they were marching down, you know, the M4 uh, toward Moscow, almost unopposed. Um, and so that does that, that does raise questions for me about, um, you know, the power structures and about who's who's giving orders there. Um, I, I think what I, maybe it didn't surprise me, but it, it reinforced for me when you look at, as you said, Andrea, the re- reaction. Nobody came out on the streets to support Putin. You know, when when Erdogan, the Turkish president, when they had an abortive coup there in 2016, people came out in the streets and, and they yelled their support for him. You had none of that. Um, uh, as you said, you know, most people, Muscovites, for instance, they stayed indoors. Uh, they tried to get uh, plane tickets out of Russia. And apparently, you know, there was a free They sold out again. Yeah. They sold out. And, and there was price gouging, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars to get to Dubai or, or Istanbul or something. So some of them tried to get out. People went and bought extra food rations and, and things like that. So uh, you know, people were, you know, realized that something could happen. But I think it shows that a lot of the Russian population is malleable. And they and and they've been for the, you know, for the 23 years of Putin's rule, and particularly maybe since 2014, they've been brainwashed, they've been intimidated. There, there are such repressive laws now in Russia that the disincentives to do anything are greatly there. But they're also, if someone came along tomorrow and said, Putin's gone. I'm your new leader and I'm going to do this for you. Um, certainly, I'm sure the majority of the population would support them. They've somehow the kind of um, activism you saw in the 1990s in Russia after the Soviet collapse and people taking things into their hand and wanting to impact politics. They've Most of the Russians have given that up and the ones who haven't have left since the war began. And so that's the kind of system that Putin has created. And I think what's surprising to me about Putin was his performance on Saturday. Um, Not that he hasn't given angry speeches before, uh, but that what he chose to do, which is just to warn of civil war and revolution, instead of on that day projecting, um, you know, uh, greater strength, which he could have done. Um, And he could have, um, and so the tactic was really these these kind of scare tactics, not that they're absent. And then of course, blaming, you know, saying that the West was gonna take advantage of that. Again, that's vintage Putin, but he could have come out and made um, a tougher speech, but also projected a, a, a better image that he was in control. One thing that is is interesting to me, so in some of the research that Erica France and I had done looking at, you know, like when leaders, longtime leaders are most likely to die in office, but what happens, like what's different about those that don't? What's different about those who are ousted, like through irregular means? And one of the patterns we saw was that these other regimes tended to have a recent history of instability. Oftentimes it was protests or other things, um, but 
that raises the really interesting question of does this kind of weaken thing set, you know, catalyze different dynamics that weren't present before. And I, I was also, um, I took note of Sergei Radchenko had made the comment, and I think he's done a little bit of writing on past precedents, even within Russia, about kind of failed coups and thinking about Gorbachev. He survived the coup. He's ousted four <laughs> months later. I can't remember that Sergei went back even further in history um, to find some other examples in Russian history where there was an abortive coup or an insurgency or something where leaders might have survived them, but then were you know, in relatively short order, lost power afterwards. And so I don't know. I mean, I wonder how that resonates with you um, kind of just looking back, you know, within just even within the context of Russian history, whether or not that is a pattern that's notable or worth commenting on. So with Gorbachev, right, we already knew that he was weakened because there were all the public squabbles between him, the leaders of the different republics, the hardline communists, about creating this new union treaty, right? About devolving more power to the constituent republics of the Soviet Union. And every, you know, and it, it was palpable. He was being criticized overtly all the time, uh, both from the left and the right and whichever direction. And therefore, um, I mean, the coup was really the last blow to that because, um, uh, you know, it 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 w- would have been very difficult difficult for him to get the different union republics to sign this treaty, and then after the coup, um, you know, he then he really lost control. But you know, we have to remember that in 1991 there were still institutions that functioned in the Soviet Union. Um, you actually had, uh, you know, the the Supreme Soviet there, the the Congress of People's Deputies, um, you know, which was a uh, where. We had a lot of discussion. You had different views. You had the different, you know, on the one hand, and then you had the leaders of the different republics and their own institutions. We're now in a situation where there really are no very few functional institutions in Russia. There are no restraints on Putin's power. There were many more restraints on Gorbachev's power in 1991 than they are today. Um, There are no restraints that we can see on Putin's power except for the people in his inner circle if they wanted to get rid of him. But institutionally, they aren't. Now, Russia is fighting uh, a war in which it's not doing well. And so that certainly has weakened, um, uh, you know, I would say the state in some ways. But um, you you don't have the same factors in Russia today as you had, for instance, in 1991. Now, that's not to say that the whole thing couldn't collapse. And what's interesting is you've had Russians writing for months now about, you know, is the Russian Federation going to collapse? And and the West wants, you know, or Putin blaming the West, saying they want, you know, us to go fall into in pieces, and then they want to bite juicy pieces off. So, you know, there's, but but I I see the circumstances are different. And then you know, if you go back to 1917, obviously Russia again it was fighting a war in which the troops were not doing well. Um, you had a weak czar. Uh, you didn't have very brilliant commanders. So there are analogies, certainly with 1917. But then again, you know, you had a Bolshevik movement and you had other political forces there that were mobilizing people um, against the, the Tsarist regime. And you know, the people who don't like the Putin regime, many of them have left. The ones who stayed there are keeping quiet because they know that they'll they'll be sent to jail. So the repressive machinery is operating in Russia today 
more efficiently, or it looks so from the outside, um, than it did certainly under Gorbachev, but also, you know, in the middle of World War One. So I think that's as far back as I will go. And that isn't to say that something couldn't crack in Russia, uh, but, th- but the circumstances are different. Um, though that that is it's such help that's really helpful context. I think the lack of institutions and um, I mean that's what actually makes me most nervous about how political change could transpire. The fact that you can't really change the system from within, the fact that kind of coordinating on the inside through the elites and others is made very difficult by the fact that you have these different security actors, you know, intentionally divided and monitoring one another. And so in my mind, it really raises the risk that any challenges or discontent with the regime spill over into the insurgency civil war kind of like scenarios or kind of the revolt uh, large scale protests that do have the potential to bring a lot more violence and chaos. So that's what makes me nervous. I don't know, Jim, if you want to jump in with something else, but I guess um, just really quickly, Angela, yeah, like as a gut check, if you, I mean, do you think Putin is less stable and secure now than he was before this happened? Or you really see this as something, you know, he's able to, he has been able to neutralize the threat. They'll adapt, they'll adjust. They might have to use a little additional repression that it, that it doesn't really change kind of his, the fundamentals. I don't think it changes the fundamentals. Again, there's a lot that we don't know in the black box. That's the Kremlin and all the people. People who who sit there, but I I I don't think it does at the moment. But I could be proven wrong in a few months. Well, that's the I think that's the I shouldn't say the beauty of authoritarian regimes because they're not beautiful, but like right. that, that that's that's what makes them so curious and always the timing of of their collapse is almost you know impossible to predict. So yeah, and you and I know as old Russia hands, you know, you think everything's stable in Russia, and the next day it isn't. So. <laughs> It's, uh, and this was a very uh, uh, salient reminder of that fact. It kind of is seemingly sprung out of nowhere. And we all woke up and you know, or were following it Friday night when we were going to bed. Okay, Jim, over to you. Um, well, let me ask, if you were in the White House, if you're Biden or, or Jake Sullivan, Blinken, um, or you're um, Zelensky and his people in Kiev, so w- what do you do as this is unfolding? We know that Biden was saying, we're staying out of this. This isn't us. Uh, And uh, there seemed to be just a uh, watch and wait kind of thing, which certainly makes sense. If you're Zelensky, um, you almost, I would imagine, feel pressure that you need to take advantage of this somehow. Uh, Militarily, you can make a case that, you know, command and control is is certainly murky now and uh, morale of the soldiers are. There's still the minefields and there's still the obstacles. Uh, which haven't changed. But, um, but you know, so if you're Zelensky, you're probably feeling that you, you've got to do something, uh, that, that don't let this window close of instability that we're seeing. And maybe with Biden, too, they're thinking that, uh, I mean, you know, we could just sit here and, and just let things unfold, or uh, maybe we need to do something more. What would you do in those two capitals uh, at a time like this? Well, so I think for Zelensky, he has used this and I think quite rightly, to plead for more sophisticated weapons sooner because of the instability, you know, potential instability in Russia. And, you know, and we know even after this uh, 
mutiny was over, we had this horrendous Russian bombing in Kramatorsk. And I mean, the Russians aren't letting up. Uh, the counteroffensive for the Ukrainians is, is difficult. Uh, they are making some progress, but it's slow. And the Russian defenses, the Russians have been, you know, planning these defenses for months. Um, and they're dug in there. So from Zelensky's point of view, really what, what he should do and what he is doing is, is asking for more weapons and more assistance in pushing forward the counteroffensive um, because, um, because the, the Russians are still fighting back. Um, and of course, the other thing that the Ukrainians have been doing is to try and persuade other members of NATO um, that at the Vilnius summit, which is coming up in a couple of weeks, Ukraine should be given some concrete perspective uh, for NATO membership. And so if we go to the Biden administration now, I think they did the right thing when this was happening. Stay out of it. This is a domestic Russian uh, affair. Even so, Sergei Lavrov has said that, you know, somehow had intimated on Sunday that the CIA might have been involved with Prigozhin uh, just because there were reports in, in the U.S. and other media saying that the U.S. also had some advanced understanding about what was going to happen. But anyway, if we put that aside, I mean, I think the Biden administration did the right thing. Um, and I think it's, you know, what it has to do. And we saw another, I think Secretary Blinken announced another um, assistance package after this was over is, you know, give, you know, keep keep the supplies up, uh, you know, debate about whether we should be supplying the Ukrainians with attackers, with some other systems, the F-16s, keep that up. Um, and I do think there's a, a debate going on now about what's going to happen at this Vilnius summit. Um, the Biden administration apparently does not want to give any concrete perspective to Ukraine about a timetable for joining NATO, but just saying, you know, at some point it may happen. But interestingly, since the uh, the mutiny, I think there have been louder calls, particularly from the Baltic states, Central Europe, and some other European countries, even France, uh, Britain as well, uh, that in fact more should be done to have a concrete perspective for Ukraine, because with the understanding that the only way that Ukraine, you know, could could fend off another Russian attack like this would be if it were a member of NATO. But right. I I don't expect anything actually to happen at the Vilnius summit. And I think the challenge for the U.S. and its NATO allies at Vilnius is to give the appearance, in fact, to show unity uh, in this war and not be squabbling. So they, they have a challenge in front of them for the next couple of weeks. Absolutely. Well, I think this was really wonderful, Angela. I mean, again, lots of uncertainty um, in trying to anticipate the implications of what this will mean going forward, the future of Wagner, of stability in Russia. So it, obviously lots of uncertainty, but I think you've laid out the issues really masterfully as always. Um, so I appreciate it very much. Uh, and thank you for joining us. And we'll, we'll I'm sure we're, sure we'll continue this discussion again um, in, I don't know, down the road, but thank, thank you so much, Angela. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.